we're going to talk about transformation today. So according to Pew Research, at this time, 65% of American adults identify as Christians. Now, some people are very concerned about that because the number is getting smaller, right? So the silent generation, 89% said they were Christians, identified as Christians. Uh, I can't remember the baby boomers. Anyways, it's getting, the slice is getting smaller, so they're really concerned. Oh, no, less and less people are identifying as Christians. Well, I'm not sure if I'm worried about that or not. I'll explain why. Of course, we want more Christians. But 65% of American adults are Christians? Really? Hmm. Maybe the understanding of what a Christian is is different than mine. I mean, that'd be a revival of major proportions, right? Two-thirds of the people you meet are a brother in the Lord, serving God with all their heart, worshiping God, serving the poor, sharing the gospel. Really? (laughs) What would it really look like if even in this room, if each of us were quietly working to help people really become obedient disciples of Jesus sharing his word, growing in holiness, serving, in our case, students, the poor, immigrants, international students, if even 20% of the adults in the Twin Cities did that. So read Luke 14, and let's look at some issues of discipleship. Luke 14, the first six verses, just to get us started. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, He was being carefully watched, and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy, kind of a withered arm. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, actually, I like this better, in in Greek it says, and Jesus answered the Pharisees. Now now maybe there's a, you know, uh, they left a little bit out of the text, he's trying to shorten things up, but really he's answering their thoughts, if not their words, right? So he answers the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the legal, uh, the Torah scholars, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Now just think about that for a moment. Here's a guy, if I'm understanding it correctly, his arm's kind of like this all the time. I might have the disease wrong, but I think that's what it is, kind of like that. Is it lawful? And here's a guy that, you know, Jesus has been walking around healing people. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they are so caught up in their religious structures that they cannot show mercy to this guy. But they remain silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or even an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? They had nothing to say. Let's pray. Lord, as we look in your word this morning, help us not just to hear the facts. We, we probably know the stories. Help us to hear your heart breaking through that we could carry your heart in these days. Exemplify, even if imperfectly, a life of discipleship to demonstrate your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what? I'm going to give you a hint here so you know where I'm going. Read the last verse in the chapter. We're not going to read every single verse, but read the, uh, oh, no, no, sorry. Read verse 34. 
salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Okay? So everything we're going to talk about is discipleship. And it's about how to be salty. Now, whether Jesus originally said all this in one day or it's actually kind of put together, Luke is wanting us to hear something here. He's wanting us to, to think about what is a flavor-filled disciple. So the first thing, he sets it up by this day, and there's three things that do happen on this particular day, and then it'll bring us to the next day, and we'll, we'll, we'll see it. But anyway, there's a religious way of looking at life that dries up the soul and removes mercy. So the Torah scholar, sorry, he's in a mixed group, right? Disciples, seekers, Torah scholar, Pharisees. They're shown here with, with no mercy. What is, what is mercy? No ability to place themselves in the place of the person who's suffering. Now, before we get any farther, just, just think about that. And if you ever have a way of carrying out your faith that closes your heart of mercy, just tell yourself, I got something off. <laughs> I need to adjust something in my thinking. This is not Jesus, right? That, that would close us off to mercy that can't be right. They had a, a heuristic, a rule of thumb there that should have told them something is wrong, right? First hint of Disease, spirituality is no compassion. But then Jesus goes on to describe people who are spiritually awake, right? Jesus is calling for awakened disciples. Are you spiritually awake? So let's see this morning. So several qualities of awakened disciples. The first quality of an awake disciple is seeking service over status. So read now, uh, same chapter, verse 7 to 14, um, when he noticed, so he's at this, you know, this Pharisee's house, right? He's at a party. The guy's invited a bunch of people. There they are. They're hanging out. And first thing he does is kind of heal somebody. And so, you know, half the people are cheering. The other half are like, that doesn't seem right, you know. And okay, so there he is. Then he's kind of looking around. And he noticed how the guests picked places of honor at the table. So I'm, I'm sorry, but I, don't, I hate to interrupt myself. But okay, I will read it soon. But just to give you an idea here. So in that culture, most commonly, if you're wealthy and had a bigger house, which would still be much smaller than our house, if you have a big house, typically uh, you maybe have a little tent area outside, but inside under the, the walls, you had a U-shaped area, right? A big U. So picture, you know, like a U, if I'm the guest, if I'm the host, uh, right about here, I'm up here, and then there's two, like a big U going out that way. And the closer you are to, to me here, the greater honor you had. And you may have heard this, but it's an honor-shame society. So it's a big deal if you're up next to the right or left hand, man, you're, you know. And this is a prominent Pharisee, probably a wealthy guy. And okay, I want to be at the place of honor. So Jesus is watching people kind of jostle around as they come to this party, right? So now we're, okay, now verse seven. Uh, so he noticed they were, they were picking the places of honor up close to the front there by that you there. So he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, Take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. Well, okay. Uh, 
If you're in an honor-shame culture, that's great social strategy. What's the point? Verse 11 is the point. It's bigger, right? Suddenly he's talking about the kingdom. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Oh, so we're really not just talking about going to a dinner now, suddenly, right? So it could just seem like crafty social strategy, but in the honor-shame society, he's saying, you know what? There's an illustration here in the kingdom of God. How God rules is not how societies function. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So if you think through your own life or church history, you'll see this all the time. One, one interesting example from church history. I know I use it a lot, but it really makes the point. So, you know, there's this rich kid, tried being a knight, got sick, got hurt, comes back, kind of discontent there back in Italy, and he has a vision of Jesus, and he doesn't really understand it. So he's like, he thinks maybe he's supposed to fix broken down churches, Okay, you know, and so he gives away all his money in front of his dad, strips down naked in front of the whole town, like, oh, God, this guy's a little weird, you know. But anyway, so he starts, and he starts taking, you know, chunks of stone and, and just building churches, but he's really on fire for Jesus. So people start kind of, a couple of guys are like, can we help you? This seems like maybe this is a good idea, you know. And so they're doing this, they're building churches, they're, you know, putting the rocks in place, doing all this stuff, you know. What in the world, right? But he's just, he's doing the best he knows to humble himself and begin to follow Jesus. Well, he eventually realizes that when Jesus said to him, build my church, he didn't mean like brick walls. Oh, okay, you know, supposed to rebuild. Well, eventually he's able to witness in the middle of uh, of the conflict between the Muslims and the Christians, be able to witness to the sultan in the midst of all that, Francis of Assisi. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, here's the point. You know Francis of Assisi, right? Even if you're Protestant, you know who that guy is, right? Yeah. Who was Pope at the same time? Who were some of the major political leaders at the same time? So even historically, he who humbles himself for the kingdom is exalted. And those exalting themselves with power, you don't even know their name. That's how the kingdom works. Christmas, right? We know Bethlehem, why? Well, because it's in Micah and Jesus was born there. But, you know, we're talking maybe a village of 15, 20 people. Right? It's just a little town. I mean, not even a town, right? We would not even, it would just be like a four-way stop on a highway in our day, right? It's just not even a place. Then he adds to that strategy, and this is really I like this one even better. So same day, right, verse uh, 12, then he looks at his host. <laughs> and he said to his host, let's, let's turn, the, you know, turn it around, the people building, the, making the party. When you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, again, it sounds like a you know, funny little parable until he gets to the punchline, right? 
What's he doing? He's teaching about the kingdom. Now, we, we don't line up in pecking order in U-shaped you know, couches, right, like they did. But do we do the same thing? Sure we do. You have your definition of the cool, the desirable, the ones that, you know, you feel a little better about yourself if they're just at the party. And you get to, or they remember your name, right? We do it a little different, but we do it. It's a human thing. And Jesus is saying, don't seek status through people. Go for the new nerd nobody. Can't even say it. Go for the nerd nobodies, <laughs> the uncool, and those overlooked. They can't reward you. Race can even come into this. Do we make a place for those different from us? The thread here is humble yourself, and God exalts. In fact, let's put the whole thread together. Humble yourself. By softening your heart to human need. Don't be a Pharisee and use your religious system as a reason why you shouldn't get involved. Soften your heart toward those in need or those that are just awkward. Making room for the Somalian immigrant or the Korean refugee or just that weird guy in your class, you know, uh, that just can't seem to get along with anybody, right? Another way to say it when our souls are filled with grace, we have the freedom to recognize human need. And, and we're, not, we're not in that status mentality where we have to justify that I have a greater status than this person or, or they aren't trying hard enough or whatever they, we think they're doing wrong. Grace takes us out of that mentality into the mentality, Lord, how can I be a part of a solution in their life? How can I be a part of bringing grace into their life? It changes how we look at people. It's a mark of the kingdom to seek out those that can't add to your reputation can't add to your social capital. When you include people in your lives who cannot pay you back, that's the kingdom. It's the mark of the kingdom. You know, my, my, my campus pastor, that he started this church, and, and he lived that so profoundly that it would just kind of baffle me. You know, he just habitually would just choose, you know, spend time, reach out, notice people that it was just like, oh my gosh, you know, there's just, you know, this is not a future leader, right? <laughs> but, but he would just do that instinctively. There was something about the kingdom when you do that. So the first quality of an awake disciple is service over status. Another quality of an awake disciple is hunger. Now look at verses 15 and on here. Next parable, when one of those at the table, you can see, okay, Jesus says this stuff. I mean, can you imagine being around him? You know, he has this social gathering, you know, somebody like, okay, we're finally at Pharisee, whoever, you know, Jehoiakim's house. We're having a good time. And Jesus says this stuff. Everybody's kind of like, okay, pass the wine, you know? So, so, you know, this guy, you can tell in verse 15, this guy's kind of, kind of, you know, lighten it up a little bit, right? Verse 15. So one of those, one of those at the table, uh, they heard, heard him say this. He's like, blessed is the man who will eat of the feast of the kingdom of God. Like, we're, like, we're all in, right? 
Yeah. So Jesus has to go and do it again, right? Here we go. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell them uh, who had been invited, come, everything's ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, well, I just bought a field. I got to go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke rocks and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry, ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go into the roads and country lanes and make them come in so my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So the point of the parable, of course, God's offering heaven, but uh, we're too busy, especially he's probably pointing that at some of the Jewish leaders. Now, these guys all have legitimate excuses in the parable, right? All legitimate. What's wrong? They don't want it. They're not hungry. They're not hungry because they don't recognize what is being offered. This is heaven, and they've got other things to do. Field work is important, right? Marriages are important, right? But they're not more important than heaven. So it's, of course, aimed in the original context at the Jewish leaders. They're not recognizing Jesus as the door to God, but Luke includes it to speak to all of us. Our need for hunger. See, Jesus is awkward, right? You read these stories, you realize he is not leaving people where they are. He's telling these stories. He's poking, he's prodding, he's exposing their inconsistencies. He's exposing their lack of hunger for the kingdom of God. And you really got to make a choice. So he's reminding us, you know, what, you know, what are you hungry for? Well, I got this to do. <laughs> I'm not going to pick on Kent, but he's got a lot of orders right now. <laughs> Hallelujah. Right now. You got to pay the bill. These things are important, right? You got to have money. Marriage is important, all important, but they're not as important as heaven. Right? What are you hungry for? What do you want? When you recognize that he's offering heaven, eternal life, all that is worth having, it suddenly makes sense. Here is why. I'm doubting that 65% of American adults are Christians. I don't sense in our culture nothing matters more than Jesus in two-thirds of the people I meet. That nothing matters more than this. There's a lot of people say they're Christian. I'm glad they say it because it's easier to take a non-Christian Christian and just disciple them than it is to take a non-Christian, non-Christian. You know what I'm saying? You're like, oh, I'm a Christian. Great, let's start reading the Bible. You know, I'm a Christian. Great, let's start going to church. Let's start hanging out. You know what I mean? That's great. It's not a problem, right? I get that on a missionary level, but it's not true. Hunger, hunger, heaven, <laughs> right? You are being offered a relationship with God that brings you a life that will, yes, occasionally cramp your style here, praise God, because your style needs cramping, mine too, right? 
that will rattle your cage and mess up your life and change your priorities because he's offering you eternal life. And some of our priorities don't fit with that. And so they need to change. Jesus is more important than my work and my status and even my human relationships, although those are important. Can anyone tell whether I am a disciple? Can anyone tell whether you're a disciple? Are you hungry for more of him? Second quality of an awake disciple is hunger. Last quality of an awake disciple is sacrifice. Now he goes on to some subsequent day. It's not the same day. Verse 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Really? Let's read that again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So then he tells a couple stories again. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundations and I be able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. So he's, you know, first of all, he's saying, okay, so make sure you're going to follow through. Okay, very good. But then he says it, it's not the same point. The next story, he's saying, but consider who you're up against here. <laughs> or suppose the king's about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men, that's us, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000, that's God. <laughs> uh, if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Okay, so in other words, first one's saying, make sure you know, you're really ready, but the second one's saying, but you know, you're not gonna win against God, <laughs> right? He's got 20,000 against your 10,000. You, you might as well make peace now. So then he says, in the same way, oh man, we're back on materialism again. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Tim led us in songs talking about the foreknowledge of God. So Jesus knew about materialistic North American 21st century culture. Hello? He knew, all right, when he said this. Are you serious, Jesus? I, I, unless I give up everything, I, I can't even be your disciple? I can't even get started? Whew. This guy, I'll tell you what. So then we say it, verse 34, salt's good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Not good for anything. Thrown out. He who has ears must listen. So he's traveling with the crowds now. So the message is to clarify the cost to follow. Discipleship is above family ties, which was a much bigger issue in their culture than ours. Above our own life, saying there's an internal crucifixion that must occur, real death to self. So then the first parable, don't start and then quit, but second parable, you can't win against God, so don't fight it. Releasing your possessions is basic 
to discipleship. You cannot be a captive to materialism and go to heaven. You cannot be a captive to materialistic life and go to heaven. Do you believe this? Fight the deadness of accumulation. I understand you need money to survive. I got 10 kids, believe me, I know. <laughs> yeah, I get that. He's not saying you don't have any money, right? But if your value, if you are accumulating for security or status, it will kill your soul. You need to save for the future, all that. We're not talking, you know what I mean? There's, there's things you need to do, right? I don't want kids to have to, you know, bring dad, you know, trade off, bring dad a meal a day, right? In my 80s or whatever. Yeah, no. There's, there's wisdom, right? But we cannot let wisdom be an excuse for sin. And you know what? You can't take it with you. Don't sweat it. As we said a couple weeks ago, your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Maybe that was last week. But verse 34 is the crucial issue in all of this. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness. So can you see how all this comes together? Jesus... It's just, it's, it's staggering to me the power of the Gospels, the written Gospels, right? Here he said something. He's God, but he was also humanly a first century itinerant preacher peasant. And so he says things really extreme, right? You got to hate your, you know, obviously you don't hate your family in a certain sense. But he's saying it's, it, it's a radical choice, right? This extreme language. Why? He's trying to create disciples that flavor the earth. All of this is so the church can season the world. Discipleship above self, money, even family. When you taste like that, it's humanly speaking like a new cuisine. Have you ever had the experience? Now, I got raised on, you know, really plain Midwest American food, right? And then one day, Chinese food. Not, no, not chow mein at the local, you know what I mean? We're talking stir fry, you know, mugu gai, you know what I mean? It's like, Wow. And, and, and a whole possibility. And then I found out years later about curries. I won't get into curries. I could get rapturous, okay? So, but the point is that when I tasted that new cuisine, a whole world of possibilities I did not even know existed filled my soul. That's why we have to be salty. Because the intention, what is God's plan to reach the world? 
<laughs> right? Us, <laughs> right? And so the idea is that our flavor is such a new cuisine that it's like, I didn't even think that was possible. Really interesting. What's the deal with this Mike Wong dude? You know, I'm talking not in prayer meetings, in his tech job, right? You know, it's like, what is the deal? People try to hatch at him and he acts nice to them. Wow. You know what I mean? There's a flavor, right? There's a flavor that is different. That's, along with our words at the right moment, that's God's strategy. That's his strategy. And that's why our saltiness is so crucial. That's why our hearts can't be captured. We can't have the same anxieties as our friends. I mean, we might have them, but we bring them to the Lord. We're trusting him in the midst. We're walking that out. Not talking about people that are untouchable, right? But that, okay, yeah, I'm worried about COVID. I'm worried about whatever. But the Lord, here's what the Lord is doing in my life. Here's how I find peace. Here's how I, you know, trust him when all things are in upheaval. That, and how we live that out, that's the salt, right? That's the, that's the reality that we are plugged into another reality, another kingdom. A kingdom's old-fashioned. The reason we use it is that the Bible was first translated into English in 1600s, and they had kingdoms. But today, it would probably be, there. it's a new government, Right? The government of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The rule of God, the way that the, the government of God works is this way. No voting. Well, one vote, God's, that's the way it is, okay? He determines, right? One God, one vote, and he gets it all right. But then as we follow his ways and we get under his government, it transforms us. And that's the flavor that touches the world, the cuisine that helps people realize another way of life is possible. Are we making disciples that expose the world to a new spiritual cuisine? Can they taste the salt of Jesus in us? So the final quality of an awake disciple is sacrifice. Read verse 33 again, or 34. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? So will they taste Jesus in us? They will if we seek service over status. If we're hungry for him, if we sacrifice so as we close here this morning, we're going to have uh, the Unto Me uh, group share a little bit. Natasha will share a little bit. But right before she comes up, I want to ask you, as we shared this morning, as we have do dove in for a little bit again, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 14, I encourage you, if your heart is burning at all right now, read over this chapter prayerfully this week. Let God speak to you. Let him saturate and marinate your soul. What is God speaking to you about? Maybe ego, maybe materialism, maybe the least of these. I'd like you to picture what would it look like this year if each of us quietly worked to become 
and replicate obedient disciples of Jesus, sharing his word, growing in holiness, serving students, the poor, immigrants, international students. If even we would do that, those in this room, those online, what could happen? Stand with me, let's pray. Natasha will come up in a moment, but let's let the Lord just speak a little bit before we do that. And then probably, yeah, yeah. So Lord, as we stand in your presence, we thank you that you help us to understand in a very good way that you and your rule is absolutely the most important thing in our lives. And if we don't see that, all of our life will be distorted and out of focus. So Father, we just start with the most fundamental. Lord, those that are here this morning and they're in some kind of bondage or addiction to some kind of repetitious sin. They're just, they're, they're struggling over and over with, with no progress. We're going to ask that you would give grace this morning that they'd experience hope and you would give them one or two godly companions to make a change. Like every eye closed, my eyes are open. If that's you, just raise your hand right now. They're just, you've been trapped and you're stuck. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. So Lord, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, for every person that sees themselves in that place, in Jesus' name, we're praying for a breaking of the power of sin. And we're praying that within even a week, two or, one or two godly companions that will walk, come alongside and bring strength of God. Hallelujah. Second question. Lord, you're, you're working in lives, Lord God. So in Jesus' name, we pray you would put in every one of our minds one or two people that we can bind together with, grow together with in Christ stimulate and challenge one another in becoming obedient disciples. Just ask the Lord who those people might be. They might be in your small group already. They might be relationships you're going to need to take a little bit of a risk and say, hey, could we do this? But just get them in your mind right now. Lord, in Jesus' name. And again, if you have someone in mind, just raise your hand. We're going to pray. Say, yeah, I got some in mind. I want, to, I want to grow together with somebody in discipleship today. Just raise your hand. We're going to pray that that happens. In Jesus' name, God, just connect us, connect the relationships, build a, a network, a web of discipleship throughout Sojourn and the Twin Cities, Lord. In Jesus' name.